This morning we pick up with our series, Face to Face with the Gospel in Galatians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 20. Galatians 4, 8 through 20. And our, our text today continues to highlight the similarities between those that lived hundreds of years ago in Galatia and our church here in America today. And I mean, it really shouldn't be surprising as our sin condition has not changed in the slightest. Technology changes, politics change, world powers change, topography changes, even the tectonic plates shift. But the sinful heart of man is still going strong. Paul is speaking into that heart today in our passage. He's challenging the people of Galatia and us on our sin and why we turn back to it. And he gives us hope that in spite of our sin, there is a God that loves us, desires us, wants to spend eternity with us, and has gone to great lengths to make sure that that is an option for each and every one of us. We pick up in Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 to 20. We read the word of the Lord. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out and that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. Another day of grace, Lord, and we thank you for your word. I pray that you would speak through your word today, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. I pray this in your name. Amen. Alden Jakaris Smith was drafted seventh overall in the 2011 draft by the San Francisco 49ers. Now, the young football player developed into a star. Despite not starting a single game his rookie year, he recorded 37 tackles and 14 sacks, just shy of the all-time rookie sack record. He went on to be a terror to opposing quarterbacks, even racking up 5.5 sacks in one game 
against the Bears. Entering the 2013 season, he was voted as the seventh best player in the league. Three years later, the San Francisco 49ers released Alden Smith from the team because his off-field issues became too much for them to manage. They no longer wanted his name associated with their franchise. And he was out of football for a little while and then signed with the Oakland Raiders. He only played a few games for the franchise, however, before his off-the-field issues caught up to him once again. And he was suspended from playing football for a full calendar year. In December of 2016, his application to return to football was rejected. The league office said that it would review his case again in March of 2017. And he was not reinstated. How does someone so promising fall so far? What inner demons must one struggle with that would cause them to cross enough lines for an NFL team to give up on such a promising and costly investment? Can we relate to this once promising star? Verse 8, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. Our original state is not a good state. It's not a God-pleasing state. For while we were in that state, we did not know God. We are not born good people. We're born sinners. We're born broken. Psalm 51.5 tells us that we are sinful from the time that we are conceived. So we enter this world unworthy because of the sin that has been passed down through Adam's seed. We enter this world enslaved to the sinful desires of the flesh. Like young Alden Smith. You know, everything may look glossy and smooth with that new wax coat shine on the outside. But on the inside, in the places that we don't want people to see, where we think things we don't want people to know we think, each one of us is broken and hurting and in need of repair. Alden had a drinking problem. His drinking led to partying. His partying led to fighting. Some fights involved knives. Some fights involved guns. Eventually, they involved the cops. The shiny image began to crack and fade under the harsh sunlight of public attention. Under the weight of that attention, young Mr. Smith turned to the help that he was expected to. He went into rehab. Verse 9 in our passage today reads, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So previously we didn't know God. We're slaves to the sinful nature inside of us, slaves to our needs, our wants, our desires. And now in verse 9, Paul is referring or referencing how we have come to know God. Paul infers that through that knowledge and because of our relationship with the Father, we're not slaves any longer. We do not need to be slaves any longer, and yet we choose to be. 
we choose to be. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Our chains have been broken. We've been set free from the bonds and penalty of our sin because of Jesus Christ. We are no longer held accountable. We've been through rehab. Rehab is supposed to change people, right? We go through rehab, we are rehabilitated so that we can walk away from our problems and enter the world as new people, right? Mr. Smith was unable to conquer his demons in rehab. Yeah, he, he came out a changed man. Yes, he played well for the 49ers when he got out and was allowed to join the team again. But before long, old temptations reared their heads. Before long, he was back to his older, his former habits. And that path has led through a few twists and turns and spit him out. Out of a job. Out of the NFL. Out of the potential that he once had. Rehab's supposed to change people, right? If we look at knowing God and being known by him as rehab, then yes, it certainly changes part of us. We gain the Holy Spirit being active in our lives. We gain a new nature that is from God, but we do not, however, part with our old nature. Not yet. And that old nature sends us running back to sin continually, consistently. Like the Galatians, we turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves We want to be once more. We slap on the chains of sin willingly. Despite knowing the price that was paid for our freedom, we wallow in our jail cell gleefully. As our conscience flutters to life and we realize what we have done, our guilt and shame insist that we continue to rest in our filth. They insist that we must pay some penance for our sin, that there must be something we can do. The old lie springs back to life and whispers in our ear that we must not be changed people if we continue to desire to sin, right? Our spiritual rehab must have failed. We must be too broken to repair. My friends, do not believe this lie. Do not believe this lie. It can be hard not to. Especially since our old nature knows exactly how to convince us, exactly where our weaknesses lie. And sometimes the truth is delivered in a way that we may not expect or or appreciate. I was at a I was at a youth convention one time and we had a comedian guest come in and his last story he told about how he had been telling a bunch of jokes at a church. And at the end of the service, everybody was, was leaving at the end of his, his time, his session, people were starting to file out, but he saw this, this little old man making his way down the pews and he's just sitting there thinking, oh no, what joke did I tell that I shouldn't have told? You know, what, what did I do? That, that offended this individual, and he's going to come, and he's going to give it to me. And uh, he, had, he, had, he had told a joke, and he was, he was pretty sure he knew which one it was. He, he told a joke about how 
when, uh, when they would be driving to church, and he made a reference to how like, it was frustrating the way, how far back they put back seats in the back of cars because they'd be driving to church and the kids would be fighting in the back seat and mom and dad couldn't do much, but you know, stick your hand behind and try and, you know, what, stop, you know, grab a knee or, or, or do something, you know, yeah, but, but the back seat's a little too far, so he couldn't, he, he couldn't ever reach. So it was just kind of this, this, this veiled threat, uh, the back seat being a veiled threat. And this little old man comes, comes walking up and he's like, I'm going to get it for that one. He's, he's going to get mad at me for... For, for how I've been treating my children. And the old man comes up and, and he looks up at him and he's like, you know, about, about the kids in the back seat. And the guy's like, oh, here it comes. And the old guy goes, I've, I found a nice timely tap of the brakes brings them right in range. <laughs> you know? Like, I didn't see that coming. He, he, that, that was not something that he was expecting to come from, from this gentleman. He, he was expecting something totally different. Not what the comedian was anticipating. How often does that happen to us? How often do we just assume what someone is going to tell us? Assume how someone is, is going to present to us? And, and we just block them out before they've even got going. Whether it's generational gaps or, or, or culture gaps. That we just we assume that we know what someone's coming and we don't we don't really, you know, we begin to write them off before they've, before they've even begun. In verses 12 to 15, Paul talks about how he first ended up in Galatia because, Galatia because of an ailment. We don't know what the ailment was, but by Paul's own admonition, it was a trial to them. It might have been epilepsy. It might have been a number of things. He might have had to go to Galatia because of a particular physician there or because the climate helped treat his ailment. We don't know. What we do know is that despite the discomfort he was to the people he was preaching to, they were open to the word that he preached to them. They accepted it and embraced him. Despite what they may have thought when he first showed up, this gentleman with an ailment, a lot of, a lot of, uh, of uh, scholars believe that it was epilepsy. And so he would go into like seizures and shake. And, and who is this guy? And yet despite what their preconceived notions were of him, because of how he looked, because of how he acted, they listened and they embraced him. And now they no longer do. They once loved him, would have gone to extremes for him. And that sentiment no longer prevails. He asks, what then has become of your blessedness? Or why do you no longer bless me? What has become of our relationship? Why do you no longer love me or listen to me? You know, we humans, we're pretty fickle. Sometimes we want our message coming to us in a certain package. It doesn't, of course. And so we decide to critique the wrapping instead of being blessed by the contents. Other times, the contents, though it may be what we need, it may be good and healthy and helpful, is what we don't want. Because it can be painful. Because it's the truth. In verse 16, Paul writes, Have I then become your enemy? By telling you the truth. Have I then become your enemy 
by telling you the truth. Any of us have experience with this? Having to tell someone the truth and not knowing how they're going to take it? When I was in the band, uh, we, were in, uh, we were in Buffalo, New York, and it was time for us to, to go back to Washington. And one member of our band, uh, I'll, just, I'll just call him Johnny, he, uh, he had been living by himself, and we were going to be moving in August. And in May, he got evicted from his place. He got evicted from the place that he was staying at. Which meant that he was going to have to come and live with, with someone else. But there was a problem with that. The reason that Johnny had, uh, had gotten evicted is because he had, he had entered a, a state of depression. He hadn't really told us. We didn't really realize what was going on. I, you know, we, we were in the East Coast, and he's from Washington, and he was struggling at work, and there was just some things that he just, we, we didn't really realize all of what was going on with him. And he had just kind of begun to let himself go. He wasn't washing his clothes as much as maybe he should have been. The, uh, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't taking the garbage out. And there began to be an aroma that just accompanied Johnny. And we would hang out with him, we'd spend time with him, but he was normally in more aerated areas. But the reason that he was getting evicted is because he was living on the top half of someone's house. And, and the smell, the odor, was beginning to saturate the downstairs. And they just, they couldn't deal with it anymore. And so they asked him to leave. They needed to get this cleaned up. They needed to get this, this fixed. And so he's moving out, and, and his response is, well, who am I going to live with? We're leaving in three months. We're leaving shortly. Who am I going to stay with? And so there's a group of us there, and, and we have room. But for the same reason he's being evicted, we are all struggling with him moving into our places. And so it came time for a discussion that I should have had with him Months before that, when things were apparently becoming a problem right away. And so we went and we got in the car and we went for a drive. And I, I took a friend with me because I couldn't do it by myself. But it's hard to tell your friend that he's got a hygiene problem. It's hard to sit in that car as the rain is, is pounding down and to have your friend just break down. Because of the truth that you're telling him. And then you begin to break down because he's your brother. You love him. And the initial response is, who are you to say this to me? No one else has said this to me. No one else has brought this up. What gives you the right? Have I now become your enemy? Because I'm telling you the truth. Because I'm giving you the truth, and it's hard to hear. We are still very good friends to this day. He got his act together after that time, cleaned the place up, and they let him stay. He lived there the last three months. He, he, he didn't end up getting evicted, but it, it just took a moment of, of time to, to get together and, and to have that, that hard discussion. He's a, he's a very, very dear friend of mine to this time. But it's not easy to have those situations. It's not easy to have something that's, that we're not proud of, something that is 
dark about us brought to light and to have someone else tell us about it. None of us like our weaknesses, our embarrassments being brought to light, being talked about. Sometimes we can blame the delivery and the lack of tact. Sometimes we can blame the condescending tone of voice. Sometimes we can't blame either. Because the truth is that the thought of others being familiar with our personal sin, our struggles, is uncomfortable. When it's taken a step farther and we're told the truth about our sin, when we are told the truth about our weaknesses, we do not always respond with thanksgiving. It's tempting to villainize the messenger when the message itself hits too close to home. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul continues in later verses in our passage to tell them how much they mean to him, how he cares about them, how he has spent time in prayer and labored over them, nurturing their faith. Paul's not trying to cut them down. He's giving them truth, feeding them truth, that they might grow healthy, strong branches of the vine. He's worried about them. He cares about them. You know, we struggle with our weaknesses. Not just our sin weaknesses, but the things that we see as weak about ourselves. Maybe it's because society has told us that they are weaknesses, or maybe it's because our actions have proven them to be. Either way, it can be a struggle. Yet Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 6 to 10, Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. This is Paul writing. For I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from boasting and becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Each of us has our problems, our struggles. But just as we read, our Lord God has told us that my grace is sufficient for you. His grace is sufficient for you. How many times do we need to hear that? Once a month? A couple times a week? How about all the time? Every time we stumble, every time we fail, every time we fall short and miss the mark, Every time we are not able to do it on our own, which is every time we need to hear, my grace is sufficient for you. God telling us that his love, his grace is sufficient. It is adequate to deal with our failings. It is enough. It is capable of giving us strength in spite 
of our weakness. God has grace enough for all of us. And he lavishes it on each of us, and it is sufficient. We continue to sin, willingly or unwillingly. We continue to return to our roots and think our terrible thoughts, commit our favorite sin. And yet that does not diminish the truth that Jesus Christ hung on a cross for you, for me, and proclaimed, it is finished. It is finished. That's not a free pass to go and sin unhindered by conscience. The Holy Spirit is alive and well in the believer, and we are to heed him, to listen to the direction we have in Scripture on how God desires us to live and to act. But it is, however, truth for each of us that our debt has been paid. Though we continue to sin, we no longer need rehab, for in Christ we have been rehabilitated. There is nothing that we can do to pay the penance for our sin because by Christ it has already been done. You no longer need to be shackled to your sin for Christ has paid the price and has declared it is finished. God bless you, each and every one. Go in peace this morning.